Gloria, in your best Will Smith impression, can you say, welcome to Earth? Uh, welcome to Earth. Wow, that's... Wow. That was really good. Terrible. Might be the best that one we've terrible. had. terrible. Yeah, okay. <laughs> You're listening to ID Four Minutes at a Time, the only podcast dedicated to analyzing, scrutinizing, and celebrating the 1996 Roland Emmerich masterpiece, Independence Day, four minutes at a time. I am Kenny Madison, one of your gallant co-hosts, and along with me on this expedition are... Lulu Nagel. And Tyler Bryce. And joining us, potentially being our pack mule, carrying our luggage up to the summit that is this film, is a local actor, writer, filmmaker, award winner, don't dare say I say, don't, don't no, say don't may say. I say, you may know, and may if not. I could say, Fine. if the court would permit me to say, Approved. a Overruled. raconteur? You're absolutely right. It was worth it. Gloria Rabel. Oh. Oh. Ooh, it feels so good. <laughs> oh, it feels so good. Welcome to the show. Thank you. Happy to be here. Welcome to the show, Glow. Thanks, Ken. Uh, <laughs> as you well know, Glow, we are covering minutes 48 through 52 of Independence Day. This four minutes starts with everything blowing up and ends with President Thomas Whitmore standing up good to know so uh gloria as you're probably aware well or well aware there we go i can say words in the right order um kenny and i of course uh old hats at this movie i've seen it several times it's it i believe that structurally it stands up i believe the characters are fun um kenny likes the movie um lulu of course doesn't remember seeing it but she did see it in the theaters how about you glow what what's what is your uh relationship to this movie um, well, uh, like Lulu, I saw it in the theater, I believe, or ages ago, either way, and didn't remember anything when Kenny asked me to do this. So I went to rewatch it and took notes because my memory, as I've stated earlier, is not very good. But, um, my, it's, as you were describing how you feel like this movie holds up, you felt there were good characters. I'm just sitting here thinking, why have you watched it so many times? Because it's just not my kind of movie in general. And, I tend to pick apart all the tropes and the things that films can rest on that they could, or they could have taken a little extra time and done a little better and, and had the same action, same suspense, the same storyline even, but some of the cliches were a little uh, annoying, I guess is the best Wait, word. Does this movie use cliches? I don't just a couple. I don't think, I think. this movie uses a single cliche ever period it's and very origi original it's so probably the most original film that i've ever seen <laughs> it, it, de it definitely has some great things in it and i took i definitely took notes on on the notable bad and good of it excellent so. well hopefully we'll see some of that good and bad i love that th this guest has done extensive homework with no taking <laughs> i'm impressed <laughs> So at this point, we are, of course, going to hear about the predictions that Lulu made. Every week, Lulu makes predictions about what is going to happen in these four minutes. And uh, and Kenny, what, what are those predictions? Tyler, as per always, great question. Jeff Goldblum will stand up inside Air Force One and will predict the next move of the Oreo cookie ship. They've destroyed all the major cities and capitals, and they will continue to keep shooting. 
They will convene at Randy Quaid's campsite and make plans. The president's wife is still alive. And most importantly, Quaid's been making a pigs in a blanket. (laughs) (laughs) We made those yesterday. We ate them. They were on my mind, I guess. Those are Lulu's predictions from the last episode. Uh, Anything else before we go watch the four minutes? Why don't we have pigs in a blanket to snack on while we're watching this? Great, great question. Lulu, you want to I have you pigs send left us over? over, but yeah. no blankets. We eat all the blankets. <laughs> cool. Oh, I heard a pig just now. <laughs> <laughs> all right, let's go watch the four minutes. Oh boy. <laughs> Y'all knew the little girl. She, she's been in parenthood and arrested development. Do y'all recognize oh. her? She was, she was, did y'all see arrested development? Oh, for sure. Yeah. She no. was, uh, she was, um, Anne, you know, the girl that dated George Michael that didn't, that I don't, I don't remember uh, who that is. Oh yeah. George, her, his, uh, Jason Bateman, uh, Michael, uh, his son, George Michael, was dating Anne, and Anne was just very, like, nondescript and boring, and he was always trying to steer her away. How do y'all not remember Anne? She's, huh. she, I mean, she's not a huge part, but she's in a lot of episodes, saying, I think. Is she funny? She played a character. I can't tell if y'all are f***ing with me or not. I did the bits from Arrested Development. Because <laughs> he never remembers uh, her. So it's plain as the Anne on her face. Her? Can we do that again? Because I really should have picked up. <laughs> Absolutely not. Actually, what's going to happen is that I'm going to peek your responses and just make those extra loud at the sound mix. Great. I can't believe that's the same actress. That's fantastic. Oh, y'all, di- y'all really didn't recognize that? No. I, I did uh, because whenever Independence Day researches came out and spoiler alert, Lulu, but they brought the daughter back for the sequel. She lives? She does, but is played by a completely different actress. Oh. That is that is rail thin, as opposed to Mae Whitman, who is not rail thin, but also not bit, not overweight or anything. And also, Mae Whitman is just a great actress because, as you said, Mae Whitman playing the president's daughter. She's a fantastic actress on Arrested Development, on Parenthood. So funny in Scott Pilgrim versus the World, where she is just a legit action star. There, she's a great actress. She's she, been in something recently. Uh, I'm I'm trying to look it up. I who, guess maybe who has been in something? Recently? I thought she had been in something more recent that I had seen a TV show or a film, but I guess not. Her? We're not familiar with who you're talking about now. Uh, never mind. <laughs> Here we go again. Here we go. Here we go again. They won't die. Bit denied. <laughs> uh, speaking of, here we go again. Uh, let's talk about what happened, folks. I was just going to say, I have a safety concern. The president's daughter was not even belted in during that escape, fiery escape on a plane. Number one, you should always be belted in and take off. Number two, they were escaping a fiery blaze. Do they not love her? Is she not important to them? What's happening? The rest of the film is actually about exploring uh, her father's lack of care about her which is yeah which is what makes this film because now that the that the uh that the bath discs have unfurled and unleashed 
their destruction, they're just going to move on. And the hmm. rest of this becomes a, a father, son, daughter tale. Uh, Kenny. If I may interject. Spoiler uh, alert. Did you Sorry. say the Baptists? Yes. <laughs> Unfurled. Yes. I like that that's the, the first thing that you, talk, you comment on. <laughs> the fire and brimstone. Yes, the Baptists. Oh, I heard Baptists. Like, they Baptist. unleashed their fire and brimstone. The giant... Basket. Oreos. Right. They, they yeah. unleashed their fire and brimstone, but by God, they sure weren't dancing down the aisles doing it. Yes. So, uh, as we learned last week, most of what we see in uh, the devastation scene is practical effects that they then composited over each other. But we also learned that the fire truck was not a full-sized fire truck. Uh, we, we heard that from the people that composited the images, but it's still incredibly effective to see, you know, that rolling wave of people running and the cars and the, it's fantastic. He did say they destroyed thousands of cars yeah. in this film, flipping them and having them crunch on each other. That fire shot of them taking on, I mean, that's, I'm not usually big on it, just explosions for explosions sake, which I know that's not what this was, but it was gorgeous. It was, mm-hmm. you know, really well done as things go like that. It's, it's a beautiful, wonderful, perfect movie explosion. Would you describe it as having a good whoosh and hammer? Whoosh and hammer. Whoosh and hammer. <laughs> Does anyone know, by the way, since we're talking about the clip, does anyone know who plays the daughter of the president, the first daughter? Because she's really excellent in this. Scene. I've never seen her before. She's very plain. She doesn't look familiar at all. Poor little nondescript girl. Doesn't her, her father doesn't even love her enough to strap her in. It is, it is really unfortunate that that actress got labeled with a hilarious character that is also aggressively described as nondescript. <laughs> Exactly. Is aggressively nondescript. That's a funny Aggress- phrase. I'm, it I'm is. Where you have all of the main characters of your show keep forgetting that she exists. Mm. Well, at least he grabbed her for a little while. But where were their oxygen masks? Where are those in Air Force oh, One? Yeah, right. The ceilings are so high. Did you see the lamp? There was a lamp in there. I did see. I was going to comment on that too. It was yeah. a desk lamp. Just It better have been bolted down. But I mean, seriously, it was barely shaking. So I think it I think it definitely was. I thought it was interesting when the plane, the plane was flying, the fire was behind it. You know, the often repeated scene where the heroes are walking away from an explosion, slow motion, and the explosion Mm -hmm. happens behind them. and They don't even flinch or turn around to look at it like a normal person would. That the plane was the hero in that in that series, walking, flying, slow motion away from this explosion. And yeah, uh, it was invincible. Yeah, the pilots. Good job. Uh, speaking of pilots, uh, I, I, you may have heard me grumble and grunt during the scene where he's talking about we could have evacuated the city. I guess that's the problem with being a fighter pilot who fought in this place. We could have saved some. I was like, that exposition is just like, oh, like forehead slapping. I'm like, you could have done better, writers. You could have done better. Let's rewrite it. Glow. How would you rewrite it? Oh, Jesus. <laughs> Jesus Christ. Well, it wouldn't be it wouldn't be rewritten in that scene necessarily, except I would have there would have been indicators of him being a pilot. Like I don't think I picked up on until very late in the movie that he was a pilot. And then 
like maybe a picture of him in the service that we glance by, or we already know they could have evacuated the city earlier. So he didn't need to say that, right? There could have been a more like pensive moment where he's just reflecting on maybe his guilt, but not explicitly saying what he didn't do to cause his guilt. So I, I will say in the in the screenwriter's behalf that one of the first conversations that he has uh, with Constance um, is about the fact that uh, they wanted a warrior and they got a sheep. And ultimately, um, they discussed the fact that he was a uh, that he was a fighter pilot earlier in the film. Uh, mm. And they also did use the uh, Randy Quaid um, as a Vietnam vet dressed uh, in his flight suit conceit a little bit later on. So in other words, they used the visual trope of someone uh, dressed in their fighter gear to help describe for us why Randy Quaid is a pilot. So I, I hear you. And I, and I think they were just doing further exposition to cement the fact that, okay, this guy is a pilot, but Kenny, you wanted to say, I was going to add this meaningless details that she's, uh, she being Thomas Whitmore because she slays queen. Uh, they describe Thomas Whitmore as a warrior and a wimp. That's it. Warrior and a wimp. That's nowadays. It. He would be called a sheeple. Well, okay. So, so I, I admittedly, I miss details in films. And so I miss how that. dare you. I know. Right. But however, if it was established earlier, then I don't feel like it needed to be, repeated and 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 if it did need to be brought back for us to remember because it had happened so earlier a more subtle way because it, 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 frequently with these films and i realize they're written to gain an audience for a particular type of audience that don't mind sometimes being hit over the head with information but i also think we don't trust read readers or viewers enough sometimes to pick up on subtle things that aren't um, explicitly said and they might not even know that they saw it. One of the reasons that I like this movie is because of how unsubtle it is. As Dono Glover said in Community, there's a time and place for subtlety and that time was before a scary movie. I, I definitely think your argument is absolutely correct. Is this a subtle movie? No, not at all. And also I think that can genuinely affect your like of this movie. Because if you would like smarter filmmaking, <laughs> sure, go, go. I, there's very much an argument that this is a dumb, 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 dumb movie. This is a movie for dumb, dumbs. Uh, and I'm number one, dumb, dumb. Well, actually, Tyler would be number one, dumb, dumb. And I would be number we're, two, dumb, dumb. We're getting shirts that have the numbers of us as dumb, dumbs that we're going to have to wear during the podcast for dumb one and dumb two. Yeah, I, I, th I agree with you. And I didn't, once I started watching this movie, I was just like, okay, this is what I'm watching. I'm not going to, I'm not going to really analyze it the way that I would say uh, three billboards or something like that. It's, <laughs> I don't know why that's the one that came to mind, uh, but, uh, <laughs> although Sam Rockwell would have improved this movie. I already think that this is a perfect movie, but I, I want me some Rockwell. He's amazing. He's so um, good. Yeah. I was just pointing out in that scene what, what kind of made me go, oh, you know. No, this is good because I think you're one of the few people who's like, I have gripes with this movie, which is. Really? Yeah. Which is great. I want to I want to hear I want to hear gripes. I want to hear why people might not like this movie, because I think there's also some criticisms. I have a gripe. Yes, Luke. Well, if 
if I were in a plane being chased by a huge explosion, my face would be pressed up against the window like, ah, is it coming? Look at it. Hurry. Can you go fast? I mean, wouldn't we all be looking out the window at it and like in awe? Like, exactly. hurry, hurry, go, go, go. Except for Goldblum, who would just be like, oh, yeah, this is this is Tuesday. They're having these tender moments with low conversations about the Gulf War was so predictable. I was so in control then. And and wouldn't mm. they be sweating with that kind of fire oh, on your Lord. ass? You'd yes. think it'd be a little hotter in that. Hyperventilating. Yes. It just cuts to Judd Hershey. He's like, is there any chance that we could get some air up in here? <laughs> <laughs> yes. I, know we're running, I know we're flying from a giant death ball of fire, but that's no excuse to have good temperature controls. Oh my God, that's really great. I love him. <laughs> I I just wanted to bring up the Jasmine uh, running from the fireball, which of course is going to be effective. Uh, she's in a tunnel. Uh, yes. The flame is coming towards her. Um, she sees a door. She runs over to the door. She kicks the door. She kicks the door. She kicks the door. Finally, it gives. She runs in, holding her child. She calls for her dog, and the dog jumps across cars to make it inside the door and the light goes out so we don't know what ends up happening from there. I thought she lived. I was like, this is like Coca-Cola down a straw, this explosion just coming so fast and so hard. She's never going to outrun it. You can't outrun your Coca-Cola in a straw, especially if it's really fizzy and it was super fizzy. Why is she the only one that saw the door? Because she's the only smart one. She is the only one with insight. Yeah. Because she's scrappy and tenacious. Yes. She is raising a boy on her own, making her way in the world as an exotic dancer. And as has been established in other pop culture, making your way in the world today takes everything you got. Go on. Taking a break from all your worries sure probably would help Jasmine a lot. Wouldn't you like to get away, though? From the giant fire fireball. <laughs> I kept waiting for her to close the door. Wouldn't it make more sense to close the fire door? Because can't the fire come around a corner or do fires only travel in straight lines? I don't think it just travels in straight lines. Does fire only travel in straight lines? Let me look this up. <laughs> Google that one. <way>, yeah. <laughs> you know what I would like to see is the exposition that would happen if they explicitly stated if she had sex with clients. Like she's sitting on the couch talking to one of her coworkers and say, you know. When I had John... I knew exactly what to expect. You know, it was in and out, and then we were done. You know that song, There's No Sex in the Champagne Room? That song is not accurate. <laughs> I think that's too subtle. That's too subtle for this movie. Fires bend corners. They're not in and out. They go around corners. Oh, what a great connection, in and out. <laughs> hot she's in a tunnel she's in a tunnel she's in a giant vagina what if kevin klein played the president who kevin Kevin klein Klein. we're not there yet we're not doing our pretend president battle yet star of the film in and out and dave oh yeah i guess he was in a movie with the president that's not as exciting what's what's interesting is that he's the only person uh that i can think of uh on our list who's played two presidents kevin klein yeah, because in the movie Dave, he played the president and he played Dave, who was acting like the president. Does he play Ulysses S. Grant in Wild Wild West? Ooh, cannot remember that movie at all. I have blocked it. That will be the next blockbuster that we cover. Oh, boy. I'll look it up. You want me to? And our Will, and our will Smith tour of movies. Big Will. Joe Hill. So in this four minutes, just to put it out there, 
We do not see Jeff Goldblum even once. So my question is, yes, where do. is he on yes, the Jeff Goldblum? Yes, we do. Yes, we do. He yes. was sitting in the plane. At the very top. Oh, you're right. My bad. Hey, Kenny, could you cut that part where I sound like an idiot? I'm actually going <laughs> to stick that at the front of the episode and then just kind of pepper that segment every three minutes. Okay. That sounds By fair. the way, you're right. Kevin Klein played Grant in Wild Wild West. Um, so he has played and- three presidents. <laughs> I think Jeff Goldblum is one of my uh, one of my people on my list of <laughs> celebrities that I would do in a heartbeat. And then the older he gets, the quicker I do him. <laughs> so I'm really glad he's in this movie because it helps. He's so sexy. Mm-hmm. Are you familiar with our Jeffcon scale? No, we have a Jeffcon scale, and it's uh, a sexiness Jeff Goldblum sexiness scale, where one is is peak Jeff Goldblum and take me now and five is hey dude you really shouldn't have taken transylvanian movie it's really not a good it's not a good role for you so somewhere in between five being not sexy at all and one being completely sexy uh so where where did you find jeff goldblum in in this particular four minutes gloria oh in this four minutes um well, it's so quick. I would have to say three because I think Jeff's baseline is always three, <laughs> <laughs> and he has to work hard to get at five and just age to get at one. <laughs> that's that's my take on it. He's beautiful. Yeah, he was sitting there calmly and sort of resigned, and a little defeated that he was right, and that he um, just like the starch had gone out of him a little bit. But that tenderness, that openness. That a little bit of sadness that made me want to comfort him. That that brought me to a Jeff Con three. I'm with you. So the real question though, how do we get him in this scene to Jeff Con one? How do we rewrite this four minutes to where we can get him to Jeff Con one? Uh well, easy. He's the one that straps the little girl into the chair because he <laughs> would be a good father. Right. He would be. He would have tenderly strapped her in before he tended to himself. And if he pet a dog on the way to to strap her in. Yeah, he somehow reaches across to Los Angeles and pets Boomer (laughs) at the same time. And he looks out the window and says, don't worry, guys, I'm a scientist who lays cable. And the velocity of this (laughs) fireball chasing us will not overtake us. I can tell by the uh, updrafts in the atmosphere. The fire is only traveling in a linear way. It's only traveling in a linear fashion. It only travels in straight lines, guys. Don't worry. Will miss us. It will not bend. Wait a minute. Mm -hmm. Firebenders exist, which means that fire can be bent. Uh, Mm -hmm. Firebenders don't exist. I hate to tell you this, Tyler. That's a TV show. (laughs) That that doesn't sound correct to me. It's, It's very correct because it is. Wow. Okay. Well, that statement just fills me with a bunch of angst. Angst. (laughs) (laughs) Why is that so funny? Sorry, guys. That's the last airbender quote that I'm going to make here. Oh, airbender. Okay. If we could just stick to the main topics, you know, just kind of the core of what we talk about. Oh, no. Yep, yep. That's a good idea. I think you, never mind, you should paint a big blue arrow on your forehead. (laughs) (laughs) I want you to stick to the point. 
Okay, so uh, we do finally get to see Randy Quaid in this one. He you do. finally shows back up, and he's in his RV. And it's a, after all that destruction, they cut to this very peaceful country, clear skies, stars, family in a car, traveling along safely. And Randy Quaid getting his day, saying, I told you, I told you for the last 10 years. Yeah, he and his family are the only ones that have basically escaped unscathed, but also they had nothing to begin with, basically. Their entire world is in the RV. Yeah, I, one of the things that I realized watching this movie was, I, I don't know if this is why you guys decided, obviously you love the movie, but decided to pick this because it felt so parallel in ways to what our world is going through now. And when I see Randy Quaid get validated for his craziness, I think, I think, oh, shit, like, let's, let's, because in the back of my mind, even though I'm not like one of the crazies, I don't think I am anyway, maybe I am, but I don't want to, there's sometimes in the back of my mind, what if those crazy conspiracy theorists are right? Like, I don't think they are, but that creeps in. And when I see something like this, I'm like, well, of course, Randy Quaid was right. It was set up that he was going to be right. And now the crazy guy is right. And his kids have suffered their entire life because they have a crazy father. And, you know, what's that going to do to them? I don't know. Film critic Lindsay Ellis pointed out this is a motif that runs through Roland Emmerich's entire body of work. Basically just going, right, but what if this conspiracy theory is actually correct, starting with Stargate and then this this movie, maybe not necessarily Godzilla, uh, but stuff like Anonymous 2012 Independence Day Resurgence uh, to a degree the day after tomorrow, although climate change isn't a conspiracy theory. That's real. Maybe he thinks it's a conspiracy theory. Certainly. Uh, <laughs> stand by. We're having some technical difficulties. Gloria, you know, the thought that's always in my head about, about well, what if they're right? The, the place that I always go to in my head whenever that sort of thought comes up is what if the Westboro Baptist are the people that are right? What if like their hate filled version of uh, religion is like you're walking up to the pearly gates and God's there with a sign and you're like, really? Yeah. You know what I think when I go that far down, like the, the rabbit hole of could they be right? I think, well, then I'm OK going to hell. Like, I don't want to live a life full of hate. So if that's what gets me into heaven, then I, I'm okay going to hell and being with all the, I don't know, nice people. <laughs> I missed a lot when my computer crashed. <laughs> uh, we were talking about the Westboro Baptist and, and Tyler was posting the question of what if those people are right and mm. they're, consp- and they, you know, the hate filled world is what you get when you, that's what gets you into heaven. I'm actually going to cut that clip out and put it at the front of the episode. So it just sounds like Tyler's saying, what if the Westboro Baptists are right? <laughs> to be clear, that's not the thought there that needs to be communicated. Right. And I'm going to cut that to where it sounds like Tyler is going to be clear. That is the thought that needs to be communicated. Wow. Did we, did we talk about, um, why did his kid? Why was his kid sick? What, Randy Quaid. They're in the RV. His kid gets sick. Is he sick from fear? So this is in reference to a deleted subplot that we've talked about earlier. I forget which episode exactly, but there the the reason that Troy, poor man's Joseph Gordon-Levitt, is sick is because he threw down his medicine in anguish in a deleted subplot. Uh, after Randy Quaid was confronting poor man's Keanu Reeves uh, about <laughs> what are you going to do. 
I'm the father of this family. Troy and angst throws down his medicine. And this is kind of the subsequent escalation of that. But since that has been deleted from the theatrical version of this, he just gets sick. Oh. Which I guess he's just car sick or, or some reason. Did he throw down an angst or angst? <laughs> <laughs> All right. So he gets up, but they keep the part where he gets out and throws up. And then the poor man's Keanu Reeves is like, get back, get back. I've got this. Yeah, he says tough cookies. Tough cookies. I thought that was what Randy Quaid said. Yeah, tough cookies. Oh. So compassionate. It's another airbender thing, guys. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. It's way outside of the bounds of it. Tough cookies. Tough. Okay. Uh, When you have to explain jokes. They're not funny. I was wondering why they would leave that throw up scene in if the subplot was deleted, but now it serves the purpose of one showing who really thinks they're in charge of the family and they have to look out over the sea of what RVs. Is that what that was? Yeah. It kind of has to explain where Randy Quaid is going next. Uh, And also basically you can also surmise from that because they listened to the fact that New York, Los Angeles and all big cities have basically been destroyed. And then immediately after that, Troy goes, I'm going to be sick. So you can kind of extrapolate that that might be a reason why he's sick as well. Every I- major icon building was completely demolished except Lady Liberty, whom they show flat on her face on the side well, on and the pavement. The trade centers are kind of still standing. Oh, were they? Like the tops are definitely burned down, mm. but they're still standing tall. This was 99, right? 96. 96. Yes. Jeez. Uh, 25 years ago this year. Oh, my goodness. The well, Lady Liberty thing was another one of those moments where I thought of what's happening today, like the literal yeah. face palm of Lady Liberty, of what the f*** is happening to our country and in general. Yeah. Go on. <laughs> that, was, that was the question I forgot to ask, too. Can we talk about politics? But I'm like, well, this is kind of like a... Well, I mean, let, let's, let's talk about politics. Like how many lives could have been saved if our president had just acted sooner or listened to a scientist? <laughs> I mean, that's that was one of the entertaining things about watching this show, for, this movie for me was how ridiculous that scenario seemed in 96 and how some version of it seems to be happening right now, including things that I think happen a little bit farther in, I believe further in god i can never never when i'm writing i can get them right when i say them i always get them wrong just the the way that that people start to be divided about what's happening yeah without saying more that's all i'll say mm-hmm. do we do we need to say earmuffs lulu and then chat i don't, I can't remember if this part has already happened or not that's why i'm not saying more so. earmuffs lulu uh just the the people that want to be taken do you, you remember the people at the, I, I'm, I'm pretty sure it's closer to the end where these people are like, take me, take me when the aliens are coming. Oh, that's Tiffany. That's Tiffany happened. and that's happened already. Yeah. Tiffany, uh, the, okay. the stripper with the heart of gold uh, goes to the top of the tower. That all happens in the buildup to this scene. Yeah. So really Lulu didn't need to. No, that's what was it sure though, but. Hey, better safe than sorry. I'm back. So we have waved her back. And the important part is that those six character deaths. Oh, hi. Welcome back. What, Lola. what are you talking about? <laughs> <laughs> Turns out that 
it had already happened. I was just talking about the people that want the aliens to take them. That's what feels like the, the way that it's absurd, but also what is happening right now in our society seems absurd. Yeah. If anything, Bill Pullman's response to the aliens in this movie is very responsible because as soon as a scientist presents him with the knowledge that there is a countdown clock, he's like, we need to go now. Let's save ourselves. Yeah. You know what? What he's trying to do is he has uh, he has this idea in his head that we will get herd immunity to giant rings of fire if enough people are exposed to it. I don't think that's the case. Mm, Doesn't Uh, work like that. It doesn't work like that. Actually, the part that I found the most fictive in this four minutes was that there's a president who would sit and think about what he's done uh, in a contemplative faction and try to figure out if he might have done things in a in a different way had he thought more deeply about it. Yeah, I guess Trump would just be like, the aliens don't exist. They're not, <laughs> there's no discs up in the air. And then immediately backpedal. And no, go, I've talked to them. We have a deal. They're great. We're working. We're, they're fantastic. <laughs> great deal Huge makers. fans. Huge fans. <laughs> Fake news. Oh, gosh. <laughs> He's oh. bad. What else? Oh, uh, these are my least favorite four minutes in the movie. Hands down. Go on. Because I cannot tolerate any animals being in peril ever. Uh, It's so painful. I hate it. Uh, I hate Boomer running away from the explosion because I don't want that puppy to ever be in danger. No. Am I fine with the deaths of Harvey Firestein and everyone else? For sure. Kill them all. (laughs) But don't you kill that beautiful golden lab. Oh. It genuinely fills my stomach with tension and dread every single time that I watch that. Yep. I can tell. I could tell when you watch it, watching you watch it. Sure. Uh, is it crassly manipulative? Certainly. Yes. Uh, but that's fine. In fourth grade, they called us into a school-wide assembly, and we gathered in the cafetorium, and they set up the film projector, and they aimed it at the big pull-down screen, and we were sitting deep down into the cafetorium, and they showed us Old Yeller. No. Don't do in it. In fourth grade. Don't do it. And I was so into it until I wasn't. And they, you know, Old Yeller does not survive that movie. And I have been angry about it ever <laughs> since. I've never seen that movie. Oh, please don't. A friend of mine used to run an acting school program that had kids that came out for camps for weeks at a time. And uh, every summer, uh, every group of kids, uh, one lunch, she would show Babe. And one day while she was uh, about to put in Babe, she said, well, here's where I turn half the class into vegetarians. And oh, my gosh. Yeah, so I was so terrified to watch Babe after the first time that I watched it. That's such an unpleasant watch as a kid. And then mm-hmm. I watched it recently and I went, wow, this is a perfect movie. I would say the stakes are high, but it's more like the chops are high. Oh, oh no. no. At least it wasn't an airbender quote. Oink, oink, oink. I, I'm a real Sokka for airbender quotes. Oh, no. <sighs> uh, one of the things that I thought about was if this movie were made today, what would it look like in terms of what would, what would seem far-fetched, what would seem crazy, given that our level of what's crazy. Like, I, I watched something the other day. It was a documentary. Oh, it was the, I was watching People versus OJ. But they had a real clip of Tom Brokaw saying, 
what you're about to see is probably the craziest thing you've ever seen on live TV. And I thought up to that point, but you know, OJ being chased down the freeway. Yeah. But I'm like, now that's not even on someone's radar of Mm. a celebrity killing their wife and running away. So what would be absurd like this is in terms of content, not necessarily presentation. I think that's a great question. Mm -hmm. Uh, I, uh, perhaps this is just me growing increasingly cynical as we lived through these awful times. But I think the most unbelievable thing was that be that the aliens would be altruistic. Mm. If they would be like, Oh yeah, we want to help you. And then us responding with just kind of accepting it. Yeah. I think um, I've been thinking a lot about writing. When you hear people coach writers, they say something like, write what you want to read, write the story that you want to read, write a screenplay you want to see. And when you look at how things happen throughout history, frequently they mirror something in fiction or similarities. So I thought, well, what would it be like if we started writing what we want to see instead of like the worst case scenario to capitalize on conflict, which I know is always interesting. But what if we wrote the stories that we wanted to see kind of like, what was the arrival, right? That movie ended up being, I felt like it was a good movie. Was it what I was expecting, but it, you know, without any spoilers, it felt, I felt better when I left thinking, Oh, maybe there's a chance. What's really weird is that this part where we're talking about that movie actually happened at the beginning of the movie uh, or at the beginning of the podcast. So, and we're just now realizing that it's happening now, even though it already happened. Lulu, you have to trust that that's just a good joke. Okay. Have you, have you not seen Arrival? They're doing airbender. Are you doing airbender things again? (laughs) No, it was Arrival, right? Oh, most definitely. I liked Arrival. I remember it. (laughs) It's the time jumping that he's referring to, the confusing time jumping. Uh, To speak to Gloria's point about writing through the context of the political sphere and writing what you want, this was a really interesting time in 1990s U.S. politics because this was post-Cold War. We were not really embroiled in any, at least prominently, uh, extra-national conflicts. Uh, And so what started to happen in our pop culture around this time in the middle of the 90s is that the kind of a resurgence of disaster movies, right? We have Independence Day, we've got ID, uh, we've got Twister, we've got Volcano, Dante's Peak, Armageddon, and all of the, we, we can no longer imagine these conflicts between countries because like the Cold War is done. So what do we do? We invent these literally larger than life uh, death scenarios from nature. And that's how we as a, a culture start achieving some sort of catharsis because the conflict is absent. And then you couple that with kind of uh, the Gen X attitudes potentially of all of this sucks. The system sucks. Oh, uh, that's not our attitude. <laughs> <laughs> and and there's this rugged individual individualism that runs through all of these things of going, don't trust the government. Uh, trust the individuals, I think most uh, articulated with Armageddon somehow hiring oil drillers to destroy a giant asteroid versus the scientists that would be able to get us into space. Kenny, to to talk about what you're 
kind of to speak to what you're talking about, like in seeing what we want, if you, if you think about like the phrase that which I manifest is before me or visualize what you want and it'll happen. I start to get in my head in this spiritual realm of how, are we making this happen because we're manifesting it in our art. What would be, what would it be like if we started to manifest something else? And if truly, like some people say, if the positive is so much more powerful than the negative, would it take a lot to shift? And could we still have interesting conflict within that shift? I think that is a fabulous, fabulous thing to think about because it is kind of this Ouroboros, right? Uh, We're putting out this, this media, that we are consuming and this potentially helps us perpetuate the narratives that we live within our lives. And then that kind of drives us to want to see more narratives like that because we recognize that. And we gravitate to things that just feel familiar in times of incredible stress. You know, it's interesting that you bring up uh, familiar things in the time of an incredible stress, because I think it's about time that Lulu tell us what she thinks might happen in the next four minutes of this film. No, let's solve conflict in U.S. narrative. Let's do it. <laughs> I'm feeling incredible stress. <laughs> okay, we still have not seen Will Smith in a long time. So we've got to see him. We're going to cut to Will Smith and Harry Connick Jr. having... We're going to interrupt them having a quick uh, jazz rap throwdown. <laughs> they'll be called to arms and to load up in the plane to go search and rescue people who have survived this fiery blast. Randy Quaid will move into that RV park and become a celebrity where he tells everyone what's happening and finally gets his day. Let's see. The president and Jeff Goldblum and everyone on the plane arrives... Where are they going, guys? Do we know? They must be going to, like, Camp David. They're going to Camp David. Well, that would be predictable, so maybe they don't go to Camp David. Maybe they go to, maybe they go to Texas. Maybe they go to, why not? Let's say they're going to Texas. No, they're probably going, they're going out in the country, some safe house, something, where they can be safe. Oh, they're going to a base or something, huh? They're going to some remote base. Okay, let's say that. We're going to some remote base. Maybe we're Will Smith. All right. And, um, oh, Jasmine and the dog and the boy survive the non, non-bindy fiery blast. They walk out through the charred remains of the people and the cars into the sunlight and have to get somewhere safe. They must join up with some other people. Those are some fantastic predictions. Thank you. It's hard to predict things four minutes at a time. That was fast four minutes. I noticed watching it. I kind of expected it to be longer. Do you, speaking of watching, seeing uh, charred remains, it's interesting to me that in these movies, the death is so detached. Yes. You know, it's uh, like troubling to me that we don't really... It's why we don't think main characters are going to die because there just seems to be no connection to the loss of actual life versus the loss of masses that are just in the background. Well, one of the things that we've been discussing up until this point below is that they actually like have named characters that end up getting destroyed in each of those locations in the, in the last four minutes that we watched, right? Um, mm-hmm. Tiffany on top of the tower and then the Harvey Firestein character uh, in New York. And then there's an aide who's on the helicopter that gets blown up, whose name I can't remember. It. I, I think it's Brad, uh, but I'm not 
sure off the top of my head. Um, but they but they've named these characters and they've interacted with them a little bit so that it's not all nameless, faceless people. They actually do try to go, hey, here's some people that you're going to recognize that we're going to put right in the middle of this trouble when it happens. But it's also the barest characterization because Harvey Firestein just acts as a guy that Jeff Goldblum can bounce exposition off of interestingly, mm-hmm. which to be fair. I'm all for that. If you have to get someone to bounce exposition off, get Harvey Firestein. <laughs> yeah, right. Yeah, he's very much a henchman. Like, yeah, yeah, boss. Yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah, do that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And his voice, if nothing else, is just delightful. Yeah, if I was going to say anything, Lulu, your impression of Harvey Firestein right there was just spot on right there. Thank you. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm Harvey Firestein. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, he just reminds me of like the little cartoon character who's running circles around the main calm character. Yeah. If you have to have exposition, have it delivered by Jeff Goldblum. And if you have to provide some context of how you're supposed to feel about that exposition, add Harvey Firestein. You have the two weirdest actors delivering information that the audience needs to hear. You can't help but just go, ooh, huh? It's true. In in relationships, if you have an over-functioner or you have an under-functioner, the other person's going to over-function. So Goldblum is under-functioning emotionally and mm-hmm. Firestein is overfunctioning, and it makes total sense and you, I would say you don't I didn't even recognize it being expositiony as I did you know the scene on the plane it was it, it it feels more entertaining like a circus you gotta you gotta bury your exposition in something that is interesting if, if it was anyone besides Goldblum delivering that exposition like I don't know a Bill Pullman type was the cable repairman then you would be going, this sounds like exposition as opposed to someone who just has those odd natural acting rhythms. Yeah. And, and, and it already looks like the kind of guy that's always talking out loud. You know, he's, he's the guy in his real life. That's like mumbling to himself and expositioning all over the place. Uh, speaking of mumbling exposition and talking all over the place, uh, Gloria, is there any place that people can find you? Oh, wow. <laughs> I don't even know how to respond to that. Um, <laughs> Anywhere they can find me. Do you want my home address, Kenny? Is that what you're after? Or just any online presence, anything that you would like for people to watch and get more of your wonderful thoughts. Because you're just always so insightful about media. Oh, thank you. Well, I mean, the best place I can uh, point you to is my current website, which is GloriaRabelBankler.com. Um, but that will be shifting because um, my name is not that any longer. Um, and I have a business called Pro Story Consulting, which is going to be up and running the website soon. So uh, fabulous. Uh, of course, you cannot find Lulu anywhere on the mm, Internet. Don't try. Don't try. Uh, and uh, Tyler, I understand that you do comedy. Uh, yeah, I'm a part of a troupe called Comedy Sports Austin. And if you go to ComedySportsAustin.com, uh, we do shows 7.30 on the Zoom, and that's Central Standard Time on Saturdays. And it's free and a lot of fun and short-form comedy that's good for the whole family. And by that, I don't mean the Westboro Baptist family. I mean real families. We're so going to get sued by those guys now. Uh, I hope so. Is Tyler funny? Not at all. <laughs> I think you're funny, Tyler. I love you, Tyler. Yes. I think you're hilarious. Yes, and Gloria is too. You can go hear me try and be funny on my other podcast, Shame Watch, apparently. Yeah. Uh, I I would say that a great episode to start with would be the Love Actually episode with Gloria Rabel oh. herself. 
oh. where a movie that I love and Gloria hates, and also she brings <laughs> up some great points about why you should hate that movie. I'm going to totally let my husband hear it because he loves Love Actually. He watches it every Christmas. And I only got out 25% of how I detest that movie in that podcast. Cool. We'll do Love Actually four minutes at a time. When I did my episode of, of Shame Watch, we made it 10 minutes into the movie that we just talked about. And that's where this podcast came from. Is <laughs> Kenny went, I bet we could blow up four minutes at a time and turn it into something. So, um, And so yeah. far, we have. Thank you, Kenny. Hey, I'd like to also say that Gloria uh, in the aftertimes uh, can be found with a group called In Our Prime. Mm. Uh, and she and her fellow In Our Primer, uh, Ryan, who was on a couple of podcasts ago, are are fantastic. Who knows whether or not we'll ever have Paul Normadin. Uh, you know, he's dead weight. Uh, but, but those <laughs> two are really fantastic. Yes. Paul, we love you. Oh, my God, Tyler. <laughs> <laughs> we love this, this is that's an effort to make sure he listens i'm gonna text him and tell him to make sure he listens it is incredibly difficult to do dramatic improv it is incredibly difficult to do dramatic improv i think a lot of people that build themselves as dramatic improv groups uh fall too much into the dower category uh and just go capital d r a m a drama and what in our prime remembers is that the best kinds of drama often have moments of levity and have a beautiful shape to them. And you cannot feel drama without having contrast. And in our prime is truly one of the best yeah, improv groups, uh, period. Except for Paul. Nor Except Thank you. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you, Kenny. Thank you, Tyler. <laughs> Also, don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe to ID Four Minutes at a Time. Every single review helps. It is very much appreciated. We survive on word of mouth, and we just love doing this podcast, and we hope that you love listening to it. Uh, until next time, folks, this has been ID Four Minutes at a Time. And remember, it ain't over until the fat lady sings. Mm -hmm.